Welcome to VPG's virtual water cooler chat podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Anna Yusum about exploring our soul purpose. Dr. Yusum is an internationally recognized, award-winning, board-certified Stanford and Yale-educated psychiatrist. She completed her residency at NYU, where she became an executive coach with a private practice in New York City. Dr. Yusum's philosophy is to help individuals achieve their highest level of psychological, emotional, and mental well-being by enabling patients to cultivate their inherent strengths and gain insight into their difficulties. In addition to her coaching practice, Dr. Yusum is the author of Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Hello, Dr. Yusum. Thank you so much for um, accepting our invitation and have this, uh, our very first virtual water cooler chat. And I'm really happy to have you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, Ashley. Thank you. So um, now that we have listened to your uh, very impressive professional background, and I would like to kind of chat with you a little bit about your cultural background, if you wouldn't mind, and whatever that makes you an user. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a great question because to understand any person and their philosophy, it's so important to understand the culture from which they came and which shaped their ideas, their mind, their thoughts, their heart, everything. And so I was born in Russia. I came to America at the age of five. Um, There was a lot of anti-Semitism in Moscow where I grew up. Both my parents faced that in significant ways, which was part of the reason they wanted to leave Russia. And we were allowed to leave under the Zionist movement. So we actually had to say we were going to Israel. And yet my parents in their heart really wanted to come to America all along. So we were able to change the course of our trip. We went first to Italy, then Austria. And in the course of that, we're able to change it because we had a relative in Chicago um, who was able to sponsor us. And so we came to Chicago where my parents still live. That was many, many years ago when I was five years old. And that ended up changing the whole course of my life. And I can't even imagine what my life would have been had my parents not made this humongous transition of our whole life from one country to the other. That's one part of my culture. As an immigrant, being Russian, as you know, somebody living the American dream, having come here fresh off, really, the plane. So the other part is that we are Jewish. And so that's something that I was raised in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish culture. Um, went to synagogue a little bit here and there. We weren't Orthodox or anything like that. We didn't, we took the holidays seriously, but it was, it was a part of our tradition. For my mother, she loved the mystical elements of it. For my father, it was the fact that his family was so connected and he had to fight so hard against anti-Semitism. So it was really more the cultural identity of being Jewish um, in Russia. So that was a big part of how I grew up. And, you know, and then life happens and then you go, you know, in many different ways. My father is a biomedical engineer, super, super rational. And my mother is a computer programmer, also super rational, but also very spiritual. 
my father isn't particularly spiritual. And I grew up a lot like my father, super rational. I wanted to be a mathematician. I come from a long line of mathematicians, math professors, computer programmers, engineers, lots of math professors, though, um, in my family. That's what I wanted to do um, in high school. One of my favorite things to do, I was a big nerd. I was in the math team, and I just used to love to sit around and do math problems, like contest problems, and that would make me so happy. It was like it would enliven my passion to see how numbers worked, to see how we could manipulate, you know, all of these different formulas to do proofs. There's something about that that gave me so much like joy. So I so understood how so many people became mathematicians. But I, at the end of the day, I'm so glad I didn't go down that path because the life of a, a mathematician is also a very solitary life spent very much in one's own cerebral hemispheres. You're, you're very cerebral. And what I ultimately ended up doing is going to medical school to become a psychiatrist, which is a profession that's much more social. And as I've gotten older, I've really enjoyed going out of my cerebral consciousness and really connecting to others, which gives me great joy. And where in my profession, I have the opportunity to do that every day, all the time. So um, that's, you know, a little bit. Obviously, I can go for hours and hours about my cultural background, but that's a little bit of what made me me. That's perfect. Um, one of the things that really draw me to, I mean, draw uh, me to your background um, is when I was listening to Lisa Bilyeu, uh interviewing you on Women of, on Impact, and um, you talk about um, unmasking, and you also talk a little bit about your culture. So as an immigrant myself from Hong Kong, a lot of the um, points that you discuss really resonated with me. Like, for example, if my parents had not decided to come to America, I would still be in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is not necessarily the best place right now. And um, there's a lot of, you know, between COVID and between a lot of political unrest, I think that was... Um, I do really agree with you that if it weren't for... <laughs> The people before us being brave, we would not be where we are today. So I think that, I mean, we did do some work too, but, you know, but I think that's one of the reasons why your uh, podcast talk on uh, Women on Impact really resonated with me. So then after that, I decided to buy a book. And then I was like, that's not enough. When I do my morning walk, I just listen to your audio book. So now I'm purchasing like, a, you know, a bunch of copies so that I'll make sure that we have a raffle and make sure everyone kind of learn from, you know, basically your experience and some of the really interesting points that you have discussed. So, um, so with that, you, go ahead. <laughs> beautiful. Thank you, Ashley. So now growing up, who is your role model and why? Yeah, I have numerous role models and they've changed over time. A lot of mathematicians have been role models when I wanted to be a mathematician. And I was amazed at how their minds work, how brilliantly and cleanly they were able to rationalize and use logic in the proof of math problems. Certain authors, Milan Kundera, in the beauty of their prose have been role models and inspirations. Um, the person who inspired me to be a psychiatrist more than anybody else is Dr. Irvin Yalom. 
Um, he's an existential psychiatrist on faculty at Stanford, where I went as an undergrad. And I read his books as a senior at Stanford. I knew that I wanted to go to medical school, but wasn't sure yet the direction. And I love the way in which he was so psychologically minded and went into such depth into the psychology of his patients to really understand how their minds work on every level and to really be able to decipher from many different standpoints what makes people tick and why they work the way they work. So that was a huge, huge influence. And now as I've gotten older, it's been interesting. Um, there's been a lot of role models, but there hasn't really been anyone who I've been like, oh my goodness, I want to be like this person. Um, the role models include individuals who are healers in any capacity that have helped to elevate human consciousness. Um, and so that includes Tony Robbins, Joe Dispenza, individuals who are really shifting mass consciousness and giving people the tools to heal themselves. Also, my colleagues at Yale, I'm on faculty at Yale, and Dr. John Crystal, his research is what enabled ketamine to come to the market for its novel uses as an antidepressant. And this is now why we have this drug that for the first time is helping people through a totally different mechanism than we've had within psychiatry for so many years. So I have some brilliant researcher role models too. And then I have just friends who have gone through very hard times and have maintained so much dignity and so much grace through it all. So the role models are coming in different ways right now. It's perfect. I mean, sometimes we get, and that actually shows that you're a very well-rounded person, as we we would, you know, we would expect. And um, so do you think what actually this kind of sparked your interest in um kind of going away from a little bit from medicine and more toward the spiritual path. Because I think from science perspective, it might be, a. is it difficult for you, you know, who is actually from medicine to, from like a doctor, a psychiatrist to go into the spiritual path? What led you to that journey? Yeah, and with the spiritual path, I think it was more sort of life that led me down the spiritual path. It was an unexpected path in many ways. Um, if someone had told me 20 years ago I was going to become spiritual, I would have laughed. I was always much more like my dad, who was uber rational. And then my mom was always spiritual, but that never really um, was something I identified strongly with until I had, towards the end of my residency training at NYU, a number of experiences that really just opened me up to the idea that the world can work in a totally different way through a totally different mechanism than I have ever thought about. And just that very nature of the world working in this different way started to make me think, like, how come I never thought about this? It made me be aware of this concept of the soul. And I'm a doctor of the soul. Psychiatrists, healers, were doctors of the soul. But the word soul is never really used in the medical lexicon. It's not used in medical school. It's not used in residency. And coming into this and seeing and learning from a lot of um, literature about soul healing 
made me wonder what is this concept of soul and what do other cultures have to say about soul and soul healing? So it led me then as I was a psychiatry resident to travel all over the world to spend time in ashrams in India, to learn Buddhist meditation in Thailand, to work with different shaman in South Africa, South America, to learn Kabbalah in Israel and then here in Manhattan in order to understand how does healing progress and maybe Western medicine's conception of healing, although very powerful and the tools Western medicine has at its disposal are incredible and yet also are perhaps limited. Maybe there's other forms of healing that Western medicine hasn't fully bought into. And so that's really been my journey is to integrate Western medicine, which is in my profession, psychopharmacology and therapy, which are amazing tools. I've seen many, many people heal exclusively with those tools, but I've wanted to integrate that with more integrative, holistic means of healing and a spiritual perspective. And that's why at Yale, I'm starting right now a mental health and spirituality center, which is going to do just that. It's perfect. Thank you for letting us know that. Now let's get to the topic for today, exploring your soul purpose. And I think that in one of the um, podcasts that I listened to, and I think you explained soul purpose as having makeup by soul contribution and soul correction. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go back a little bit. So, you know, I mentioned in this journey to understand the soul, I went to all these different places. And so let me first give you what I believe to be the best definition of the soul. Most of you know what that is, at least colloquially. But this was my question. Why was I never taught about the soul? What is this, you know, mysterious thing called soul? My favorite answer to that question of soul, since we're about to talk about soul purpose, is it actually came from a Mexican shaman named Fernando Broca. And he said that the soul is composed of two parts. The first part of the soul is that which connects us to everybody and everything. So our interconnectedness. The second part of the soul is our uniqueness, that which encompasses our unique set of talents, skills, interests, abilities, experiences, what we bring into the world that nobody else can. And so the two parts of the soul are at once our interconnectedness and our uniqueness. So now what is your soul purpose based on that? Your soul purpose, just like you said, I believe is composed of these two parts, your soul contribution and your soul correction. The soul contribution is a pretty straightforward concept. It's what your soul has come to this world to contribute. What are you meant to do for humanity? What are you meant to do for the world? How are you meant to share your talents, abilities, interests, that which makes you completely unique? in the world to help elevate human consciousness, to help further evolution, to help do something good in the world, to help be a part of something, to help raise wonderful children, whatever your soul purpose is. And for everybody, it's different things, right? That's the first part. And then your soul correction, that's a slightly different and a little bit of a more complicated concept. That concept actually comes from Kabbalah. And your soul correction is that which your soul has come into this world to correct. In Kabbalah, they call that idea tikkun. And you can know your soul correction through a few questions. Number one, what is the greatest source of pain in your life? Often your pain, your biggest pain, is what your soul has come to correct. Another way to think about it, what is that thing that keeps coming up in your life again and again and again, often much to your chagrin and dismay, and despite your best efforts to change it? That is also your soul correction. 
right? And for everybody, it's different. For some people, their self-correction is in the realm of relationships, having a healthy, stable relationship, and all their pain comes from not being able to do that. For other people, they have no problem with relationships. Easy breezy. What they have trouble with is finding a meaningful career that they're able to make a true contribution and that feels fulfilling to them. And for other people, it's having resources, like having money, something like that. And for other people, it's anxiety. And for other people, it's addiction. Like those are all some examples of people's soul corrections. They're all different. And so your sole purpose is at once making that contribution, figuring out what am I meant to do in this world, but also your soul correction, what am I meant to overcome? And once you have those two, what am I meant to contribute and what am I meant to overcome? Then you can understand why you're really here. Do you think that the concept of sole purpose, of a sole contribution and um, sole correction is universal or do you think that there are cultural distinctions? I think that um, the concept of a soul, how people will define a soul and what people will say the soul is and the idea whether it's transcendent or not, I think that there's many, many different cultural ideas to that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that there's two parts to why we're here, the idea that we contribute and we overcome challenges, I think that's a universal part of the human experience. And you will not meet anyone in this world who has come in and isn't meant to contribute and overcome challenges. Those are just two universal things that are part of our existential journey of being human beings. Okay. Now, um, with your background, you know, and some of the studies, especially the um, research that you have on like soul purpose and what made you decide to start writing this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it was, um, I started to have, it started with all these experiences that didn't fit well into the Western medical model and having experiences with patients, such as a patient having a dream about something in my life that there's no way they could have known. And I'm like, how in the world did this patient know that? And I never told the patient that something like this happened, but they had a dream. So it's really fascinating. And my having dreams about the life of my patients. And there's a case that I described in my book about one patient that um, I was in on a Kabbalah trip at the time in the Ukraine. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, having what must have been a midnight panic attack. Patients had described this before, the midnight panic attack, like waking up in a start. And I'd never experienced that. And I woke up and I'm like, something is really wrong. And I felt compelled to check my email. And literally one minute prior to my having woken up, a patient of mine had emailed me that he was feeling suicidal. And the fact that I was able to call my patient in real time and to be able to metaphorically and literally talk him off a ledge was so meaningful to myself and to my patient because how in the world did I get this communication that something was really off seven time zones and 5,000 miles away? So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the world didn't quite operate in exclusively in the way that Western medicine and our traditional models of the mind and of the world, the way that I was taught, that there's something greater, like perhaps our minds are a little bit more permeable, perhaps we're more connected with each other than we thought, which actually goes back to this definition of the soul, 
part of the definition of the soul is our interconnectedness. And it's these experiences that for me solidified our interconnectedness, that people know what's happening in my life through their dreams and vice versa. And I could be woken up with a start. And, and so these are the kinds of things I became very interested in. And over time had accumulated enough stories that I was like, you know what? I think it's time to write a book about this. And I'm so glad you did. <laughs> because one of the one of um the aspect of your book that I really enjoy is the exercise, especially when I was listening to the audio part of it. And then you would ask us to pause and just kind of like think about it. And I particularly enjoy reading the part about transformation transformation of fear. And a lot of time, like we interpret, I'm just thinking from my experience and reading your book kind of made me be a lot more conscious about the decisions that I make. A lot of it's fear-based and fear, as we know, I'm just quoting you, and, you know, false evidence appearing real. And so a lot of times when I'm like, and I also work in the legal industry, so how can you not be fearful, <laughs> you know, litigation? And so I have developed this really risk-averse mentality you know, everything is like, you just have to, I, I just could not really trust to some extent. And also with, I think that has a lot to do with being, I came when I was like maybe 12 years old. Um, so I have formed enough of opinion. I've known enough about like the Chinese culture from Hong Kong and coming here and being just sort of not being able to speak the language fluently and sometimes being made fun of and so there's a lot of things that growing up I have sort of um actually just became a lot more fearful and I've also witnessed how my parents were really fearful of not being able to make a living you know that we might I mean one of their concerns was like are we are they go going to be able to provide for us so that we can actually like make a decent living when we grow up so a lot of those like really affected our soul like you know in terms of when we were in our very formative years in a foreign country so I think that really I didn't really quite thought about this until I started reading the transformation of fears and the, the different aspect of it. And so this is one of the reasons why I really want to want to get you to talk about some of this concept. So yeah. thank you. For yeah, that. I love that. I love what you're talking about, Ashley. And also, you know, you asked about soul corrections before. The majority of our fears, whenever they come, you're exactly right that they have antecedents from way, way back in childhood. They have triggers, things that we might remember now that trigger us. And you're also exactly right about the illusory nature of the majority of our fears. Fears, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. The majority of fears are just that illusion. They never come to pass. And that our goal is to transform these fears into our soul correction. If indeed this is a fear, how do we transform it into a soul correction? What is it that we're meant to overcome? And what steps do we take to liberate ourselves from the fear to be able to get to the other side of fear and have faith, love, and trust, and then to free ourselves. Perfect. 
Well, I think we are almost coming to the end of this. So let me ask you, what are some of the key lessons that you would like to share with other women um, or the humanity in general? Yeah, I think that if something is entrenched in your heart and you deeply want it to never give up, the things that we have in our heart often don't even come from you. They come because that's what you're meant to want in this world. And if something doesn't seem to be working out, you just have to go for it and believe. And you have to bring in the right people, the right circumstances, the right environment to make it happen. So that's the first thing, to never give up. And number two, this is a very powerful message from my colleague, Dr. Joe Dispenza. In order to bring into your life what you want, you have to shift who you are. You have to become the person you want to be. And it's a very difficult skill set, oftentimes, of trying on a new persona before you have the new reality that you want. And so the mechanism is to start to think the thoughts of that person who you want to be and to start to feel the elevated emotions of that person who has what you want. So, and that's a whole skill set to develop. Most of us, if we are not getting something we want, we get upset, we get sad, we get downtrodden, and then we go into our spiral. But there is another way. And that other way is to release that and say, no, I'm going to manifest what I want. I'm going to own my destiny. I'm going to own my life. I'm going to join the support I need. I'm going to feel the positive feelings and think the positive thoughts. And that's the control you have. It's, it doesn't mean 100% it's going to manifest, but if it's going to manifest, that's how it's going to manifest. That's beautiful. Um, one of the things that I wanted to kind of share with you is that, so I have been a litigation paralegal for a long time. And, um, I think we'll actually go to school studying to be, you know, a lot of people want me to go become a lawyer, but I chose to want, I wanted to be a researcher actually for a long time, and uh, but I didn't, and I fell into the legal industry by accident, um, and I was actually doing, kind of coming out of a research position and decided to go and um, look for the, I actually wanted to go pursue my PhD in political science, but, you know, didn't kind of go through that. So it had a temporary position that I actually kind of accepted. And then it was through this particular firm. And then uh, I worked with the, the paralegals there and I really respect them. And I was there for a couple of years. Then eventually I really became interested in patent law that was construction that became really interested in patent law so i just kind of did a paralegal study and went through with the whole thing and it turns into like about 19 to 20 years so sometimes i feel like there's a mystic way of how life guides you my professor uh he's a law professor and he used to tell me actually you need to go to law school and i'm like no he knows how stubborn I could be. <laughs> so I was like, no. But somehow it was really interesting how I ended up supporting lawyers for like most of my life. And um, in 2017, my dad uh, passed away. And on the day of, there were so many things that were actually, I didn't know why I behave a certain way. Like, for example, I didn't know why I did not argue with him, you know? And because usually I would argue with him. 
And, but on the day of his passing, I just did everything that he wanted me to do. And then we sort of like finished that. And then he goes, you know, and um, then after that he passed. And two years later, I mean, I have the responsibility of taking care of my mom, but two years later, I just decided that I'm really burned out, that I've been doing everything the same way for a long time, very reliable with my work and things like that. But you just never know when life actually presents you a different opportunity to see things differently. And my fear before was like, oh, if I don't do this, what am I supposed to do? Like, do I just go to another firm? Do I, I mean, I don't think that I would have any issue, you know, if I wanted to do that, but I didn't feel that it was fulfilled. I was so empty inside and I just needed something different. And I talked to a friend of mine who actually was a paralegal and she started her own company as well. Not as drastic. But <laughs> and then um, we just talked about how like she was really empowering. Um, she, had, she has very strong women empowerment themes. And we talked and I listened and still I was really fearful about taking this step because it's a lot of financial hit and, you know, am I going to get clients? How am I going to get clients? And how am I going to get support? A lot of things that, you know, I'm really good at what I do, but not in the, I have never been placed in this other set of circumstances. So I would have no way of knowing, but I am really happy to say that I am so glad I made that decision. Like three years later, generally will be three years of my company, but three years later, I have become much more confident and much more authentic. I mean, I, I feel like that I was like faking it until you make it. So most of the people didn't know who I was because I never bothered to talk about it. I knew that going in there, my parents used to say that you, nobody is supposed to, you're not supposed to be there to be happy. They don't pay you to be happy, you know, very traditional view. So like some of the people that I know was like, oh my God, you're miserable. I'm like, no, I just go on vacation. So you can see the travel, you know, social media sometimes presents a certain set of facts to make people look like that they're happier than they are. But when you are like, that candle is almost like, kind of like burning to like, you're basically burning at the end of, of your candle and you're trying to figure out exactly how much longer I can do this. You know, so I'm really thankful that I have this opportunity to just have the freedom to do the things that I wanted to do and the freedom that I wanted to pursue. And I also have a wonderful platform of people that support me and including like Caitlin, Tori, and then like my whole animal kingdom here, <laughs> essentially. I mean, it's like people probably was like, oh my gosh, she's nuts, what is she doing, you know? But I'm happy.
Like, I don't need to say any more than and that. So I am like if I were working on like if I didn't choose this particular path, and I don't know why really, not a specific reason that lead me to this particular path. It's just that I'm glad that it happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I love that. And you know what you said, you said so many things that were so brilliant and so important. And I think one of the key ones was that sometimes it's a new perspective that is the greatest thing that happens. And in Marion Williamson's Course of Miracles, they define a miracle as a shift in perspective, being able to see an old situation in a new way and therefore getting out of our way in a, in a sense to be able to move forward with our life and see the good. And you're exactly right that often the guidance we have in life to be the best version of ourselves and do what we're meant to do and shine in uniquely the way that we can shine happens through very subtle guidance, like spiritual guidance almost, that you can only understand and looking back and seeing all these different steps led me to be here. And in this place, I didn't want to go in this direction. In this place, I was very resistant but look at where I'm at and look at how I got there. And it's just so beautiful. The masterpiece is like an art form. And I just want to let you know that your book, audio and also, you know, hard copy format really did help me. And I actually was talking to some friends and recommended the book to them. So I can kind of like when I'm seeing, I love reading. <laughs> I just really do. And then so some of my friends that I've kind of um, really want to see them doing well. So I was just like, buy a book and Amazon will copy to them. <laughs> I was like, you should do this. And let me send you a company journal to go with that. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So um, thank you for contributing to like all of us. We could do a corporate wellness program for your company. I do a lot of those um, around the ideas of my book, absolutely, to really help people to see in a new way, to break through what's holding them back, to get more cohesiveness with colleagues. And I think it's beautiful. I love that you are recommending it to friends, to colleagues. I hope that more and more people are going to be able to connect with themselves and with each other in these ways. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yuzum. Mm-hmm. This has been amazing, and I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing both your wisdom and your time. Absolutely, Thanks. Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great day.